0: Yes, a drum roll. This is it. This is where I post three figures. For this is episode number 100 of Inside Agriturf, my podcasting innings that began in July 2020. It has been a wholly enjoyable and satisfying journey through the ebbs and flows of that we call land-based engineering, expressed through the voices of its practitioners. It's an industry that mostly flies under the radar of widespread public recognition, but which engages the skills, the vision, and the entrepreneurial spirit of the most genuine and committed people you will find anywhere in business today. I'm Chris Biddle, and yes, welcome to episode 100 of Inside Agritof. early 1980s i was managing a garden machinery dealership in salisbury and one day a new rep walked in on spec to try and convince us to stock a range of swedish made lawnmowers now i'm not sure whether we bit that day but more than 40 years later my guest today and i have moved in contrasting directions but still in the same industry In many ways, it has been a no-brainer for me to invite Keith Christian as my guest for this special episode, which I recorded on the first official day of his retirement as Director of the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, BAGMA, and possibly still recovering from the many farewell events heaped deservedly upon him. So Keith, uh, a w- really warm welcome. Have you, or, or more importantly, your wife Katie, come to terms with the word retired?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of people just say to me when well, you uh, have, it feels like being on holiday to start with, having a few days off, and it only sort of catches up with you a bit later on. But at the moment, I I don't have any bad feelings about it at all. It has been a busy few months, really. So I'm quite b- grateful for a break at the moment, but I have still got a lot to do this week to tidy everything up. So yeah. I'm still working a bit, but don't tell Katie.
0: <laughs> well, indeed. Well, no, obviously, wish you absolutely all oh, every the best in uh, in as you, you you move further into retirement. It is a it is a significant moment, I must say, um, Keith. If we could go back to the beginning and growing up did you dream of being a mower mogul or whatever you might have become in, in the meantime
1: no not really but, but there is a picture of me at about eight or nine years old fixing my grandmother's lawnmower so there must have been something there then no my uh my dreams were more about joining the navy believe it or not but, and that that just changed. You fall into some things, but um, I've been very happy with what I've been doing, so no complaints.
0: What What was your first actual job?
1: When When I finished at school after A-levels, I actually did some freelance work, if you like. I worked on a farm. I did some landscaping, some forestry stuff. My first proper job having been encouraged by somebody to get a proper job was actually with Lloyds bank. And I worked with Lloyds bank for about three years based out of Cheltenham and ended up doing what they call summer relief at Borton on the water. Uh, And that was really good because when you were in the country branches, you literally had to do everything and you really learned by the seat of your pants. So that was enjoyable they pushed me back into Cheltenham and gave me a really boring job, which I hated. But I bumped into my old manager at Bor- uh, from Boughton on the Water, and he was looking for another summer relief. and He asked me if I'd like to go back, which which I did. So I did uh, Boughton on the Water, stowe on the Wold, Morton in Marsh, so all all the country branches where all the Gloucestershire
0: circuit. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Very, very good. Good, good background. I was probably never cut out to be in banking, and I was doing a job. I used to do the sub-branches at the fire service college at Morning Marsh in one of the outlying villages, and I also had to do securities, as they called them in the bank then. But I wasn't actually qualified for securities. So although I did the job, because I wasn't qualified, there was really no future for me, so I left. And um, I worked for Pickford's. For a while, as a student, I worked for Pickfords, and Pickfords found out that I was leaving the bank and asked me to go into their office in Cheltenham and be, what you call, I don't know, a removal coordinator.
0: Nice great, I knew a you.
1: lot about how it worked, and that was a pretty stressful job to be honest, trying to keep everyone happy when they're moving house. And then I went to Leisureland in Cheltenham, which was the biggest sports and leisure store in the country at the time and then I left there and needed to find a job we had a young baby at home and no money I went to the job centre looking for a job and they wanted me to sign on I said I don't want to sign on I just want a job and anyway in the end I ended up with an interview at Burlingham's with Dick State who you'll remember and um that, that was funny because the pretty much the only question he asked me was, if you started up a brand new lawnmower and it was smoking, what would you think? And I just said, Well, it'd just be burning off the oil that's in the engine. He just said, Fine, you've got the job. So that's how I got into the industry in a nutshell.
0: And, of course, there was a pretty strong connection between Burlingham's and Bagma at that stage, wasn't it, which you oh, yeah. you couldn't have foreseen what might have happened from there?
1: No, and, and I have written about it more recently in, in the Bagma magazine with um, David Burlingham's history. Um, Dave, David passed away, and um, John Burlingham actually gave me a load of history that David had written out about his days with Bagma, And I found that fascinating. And Richard Burlingham before them was the president of BAGMA, as was David Burlingham. But some of the stuff David Burlingham did in terms of training and education, everything was amazing. Set up the BAGMA diploma and that at Cranfield University. Worked on setting up proper apprenticeships in the industry. Absolutely fascinating. And uh John Burlingham, of course, ran the fringes and ended up work working at one point for um Bagma through the BHF with yeah. the connections there. So yes, the Burlingham family very heavily involved in Bagma over the years.
0: What were your first impressions of the garden machinery business, Keith? I mean, did you did you fall into it? You'd had you have been in banking, you've been in removals, you've been in sports, <laughs> uh, and now you were in effectively lawn mowers.
1: I, I suppose I I really liked it. You walk into a family business like Burlingham's as a young person, really. And everybody wants to help you. Everybody wants to teach you. You know, I'm eternally indebted to Colin Bayless for training me. And I took over from Colin as the professional rep. And the older guys in Burlingham's, they were brilliant. I used to go out with them demonstrating and that. and they They could teach you so much. I remember going up to Hidcock Gardens to do a demo with the national sixty eight when i when the first week I started, and the first thing I was told is whatever you do, don't drive on people's grass. Mm-hmm. You know, I've remember that one ever since uh, you know get the lawnmower out, and of course, always set it up a little bit higher to cut don't drive into long grass with a with it set on its lowest cut so those those first weeks were amazing and things that stick with you for a long time yeah uh, and it was great and to be just thrown out on the road go and sell some stuff round golf courses schools all sorts of things councils and people generally the customers the staff and particularly the reps and the bosses from the suppliers were you know, really generous with their time and that.
0: So, and you had uh, a fer- pretty fertile area around there to work with, wouldn't you? It's a very quite quite an affluent area, quite quite rural and a lot of grass.
1: Yeah, and 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 the advantage of working for a company with a very good reputation. So. Uh, yeah, I, I I did enjoy it. Being being outside, you know, you've got the best of both worlds, really, because you can do some workshop stuff. You can be out on a golf course selling. You can be out with a group of people. My, my very first company car was a Piaggio three-wheel little truck, which we'd started selling, and I was running to and fro from home with. But then after a couple of months, I got the standard Burlinghams Renault 4, and I still say to this day, it's probably one of the best cars ever made. Yeah. It would do everything. You could drive it across a plain field without any problem. It was amazing. <laughs> but yeah, no, very good early days. Learned a lot.
0: So how long were you with Burlingham then?
1: About about three years, I think it was.
0: And then came an opportunity to join a, a national manufacturer, effectively.
1: Yeah, I I, I was trying to remember how that came about, and I I don't know. But, yes, I went to Spear & Jackson primarily to sell Steger product.
0: Um, Had They they had sort of really moved into the machinery market, had they? Uh, I mean, because obviously they're well-known for tools, and that's their main product. Yeah, they they
1: started a division importing smaller equipment, really, and then they they took on Steger for for England because – Ricky's in Scotland were handling Steger for Scotland, so Spear and Jackson were doing it for a while, along with some other products, and and that 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 was good. I mean, Spear and Jackson, as you you say, they were a tool company. So when you turn up there and they've got a small car for you to tow a trailer around in, the first thing you're like, well, hang on a minute, that's not big enough or powerful enough. And that was their policy on company cars. But um, another good education, good good traditional company, Spear and Jackson. And I, I had the benefit of going out with one of their older tool reps who was about to retire. But their, their real interest was the smaller equipment, the lightweight mowers, the electric ones. They were, they were doing the, um, I think it was the crown hover mowers at the time. And so a lot of smaller product, which they were comfortable with, but when you come into the bigger Steegers and that, they they weren't too comfortable with that at all. Didn't understand that.
0: What was it like, sort of going from a family uh, company in a in a small rural dealership to a, a national manufacturer? Was was there a, was there a cultural change?
1: I don't I don't remember there being a cultural change, but I think because the so called lawnmower division in Spear and Jackson was quite special and rather different than what Spear and Jackson did, I think, you know, we were left alone really to get on with it because nobody else understood it. So (laughs) it was probably easier in that respect. Uh,
0: And indeed, as as I've said earlier, uh, we, we first met when you were a rep. I was managing a... Garden Machinery Branch in Salisbury, and uh, you came in with a colleague uh, to try and wind some uh, uh, Steegers into it. Um, And we were completely wedded to Mountfield and Hater there. I mean, little did we know what would happen way down the line, of course. But um, so, you know, and that must have been the early 80s. So, uh, gosh, yes. Yes, Yeah,
1: yeah, it would have been. And uh, I remember coming in to see you because I think you were handling the Rover product at the
0: time. We were indeed, yes. Uh, good
1: machine as well
0: but it was until they dropped it and then <laughs> yeah. um
1: yeah so I, I remember that being shown around the dealers and it, it takes a while to get to know people but um once you once you know people and and understand that you can go in anywhere but if you see people are busy you need to walk away you know just wave and go out come back another day because yeah Never really be bothering people when they're busy with their own customers.
0: Um, absolutely, absolutely. So, so how long did um, the experience with Spear and Jackson uh, last? And um, what was the next opportunity that came along then, Keith?
1: I think Spear and Jackson was two or three years, and then Spear and Jackson, maybe coming back to your first question, decided that lawnmowers and ride-on product weren't for them. So they decided to wind up that operation. Uh, but what what it meant was there was uh, a whole marketing plan and everything ready for someone else to take over. And because uh, Rikis in Scotland was, was handling Steiger, that marketing plan was taken to Reiki's and Reiki's were asked if they wanted to start up an import distribution company in England, uh, based in England, not in Scotland. And that, that moved on to a sort of get-together in London with John Rieke, a very, very straightforward company to deal with. And John Rieke basically turned around and said, okay, let's do it, go and find some premises and we'll get on with it.
0: Uh, and was um, what what other products were they handling at that time?
1: Uh, Rieke's? Yes. Uh, Rieke's were Hinamoto tractors. Uh, Greens they were the manufacturer of the Greens product at the time Um, and they had all their own production stuff they had um, a number of uh, big big agricultural machinery outlets in Scotland Uh, always a lot of confusion because two Riki brothers with two separate companies so it was always sort of Still is, actually. Uh, when you say you work for Reekies, people assume it's the other company, not the one you work for. So uh, that, The other
0: one that, was an agricultural uh, supplier, agricultural machinery. Well, supply,
1: they it? were both very similar, except um, Reekies from Marlborough, who owned what became Claymore Grass Machinery, uh, they were also heavily into the manufacturing side of things for potato harvesters, planters. And um, uh, equipment for the oil industry as well, so and still are, I believe. So,
0: so, so you had this job of um, identifying, finding uh, some premises, and and presumably also staffing it. Um, uh... Yeah, we, we,
1: with with the manager who was in charge at the time. Uh, so, we, yeah, we started the business with four people, and um, we actually bought part of Woolsey Webb's old factory off Electric Avenue in Birmingham. Um, wasn't ideal, um, but it was available, and uh, we started to build up the business from there with, with Bolands, uh, which we we actually took from the old Howard company. Uh, a lot of parts and old products and things uh, we had. Uh, we were just started negotiating with Robbery from Holland at the time. So we were taking on a, a very top-end piece of commercial equipment, uh, along with domestic product, Bolands, Gloria, and a few other things, and uh, developed further and further into the Claymore years, into other things as, as manufacturers
0: changed and things changed. And you hooked up with um, Colin Bayliss. I was a bit
1: naughty. I, I stole Colin Bayliss from Burlinghams at the time, uh, you know, pro- probably one of the best things I ever did. Uh, Colin was brilliant with everything. Um, and also, and not related at all, but Andre Baylis also came from Burlingham to join us. And uh, uh, as I say, we set up what what was Claymore Grass Machinery under the Riki banner. And um, Andre is actually still there at FGM Claymore now.
0: So over the years, you, you you as you said, Boland You had Stego, Robarine, and Simplicity. Um, mm-hmm. Massport, of course, that that came on board. Yeah, yeah
1: Ma- Ma- Massport, Massport, and SABO. When their old importers went bust, and we were quite interested in Massport. Didn't at the time, I remember, we didn't really want to do SABO, but in the end, we ended up taking it all on, and the SABO. Sabo actually owned Robarine at the time, so in a way it made sense for us to do both of them.
0: So so at so various stages, you must have had seven or eight major brands under your wing then.
1: Yes, um, not too many of them recognised. Bolands had sort of gone right down. And then when, when Bolands finished and we eventually took on Simplicity – They were all product ranges that were generally by brand name were being revitalized in the UK. The only new one that we introduced to the UK was Robering. And I see that's come back again now. Tough business, competing with the likes of Ransoms and Toro and Hater at the time. But uh, we we had quite a lot of success with Robering, but we tried to be quite quiet about it. If you shout too loudly, everybody's after your business. So.
0: Indeed. Uh, so, having on all these uh, brands under your belt then, Keith, uh, and all with factories all around the world must have given you quite a lot of uh, opportunity to to travel. Um.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I was uh, been criticised for that many times, but uh, one of the ideas was as, as we moved on in in Claymore, One of the ideas was was to have product from different countries. Uh, so we were, we had a spread of currencies that we worked with. So we weren't totally reliant on any one currency as everything bounced around. And anyone who imports will understand that. I'm, I used to spend a lot of my time actually buying, forward buying and contracting currencies. I remember Simon Ricci saying to me one day, we, we, we'd made a small profit one year. It was a tough year but we'd made quite a lot of money on currency purchases. And Simon said to me, well, you you got rather lucky with your currency purchases. And um, I, w- I was less than happy about that because I remember the hours I'd spent talking to the bank trying to buy the stuff. <laughs> it wasn't what, like nowadays, you just press a button on the Internet and everything happens. You actually had to be on the phone to the bank while they were reading off the currency changes to you. So. It was all good fun, you know. It's where so where my banking experience helped.
0: So this this um th- this collection of brands, international brands, shall we say, um also gave you an opportunity to uh, put together dealer trips as well that um, obviously went down very well and uh, were well documented <laughs> at times.
1: Yeah, so, somebody was asking me about that at the um, AEA conference recently. How on earth did you do it? Um, that we had some of the best trips going at the time for, for a very small company. but we, we started a couple and it, it worked basically that there was the, the, the dealers had to buy into it um, on incentive programs and with with some cash injection. And the manufacturers suppliers, they contributed to it. And so did we as a company. So you had a sort of three-way split on the expense side of it. And we pretty much organized everything with, with the suppliers and people in different countries, like Massport in New Zealand, for instance. So you had quite a big contribution from other people. But the trips were so unique and so special. We organized everything. So pretty much people, all they had to do was turn up with their toothbrush, and that was it. You know, I remember we always used to say to people, this is the programme, the bus is going at 9 o'clock. If you're not on the bus at 9 o'clock, we're going without you because you can't have a bus with 50 people on it waiting for two people to get out of bed. And very, very quickly, everybody realised it worked. And we used to go away with some great groups of people um, to some very special places and doing things that you couldn't do yourself you just couldn't pay for it yourself um some fabulous trips all sorts of stories about them and we had a core group of people that used to come on every trip and and actually they used to look after any newcomers that came along so in in the end it was it wasn't a chore at all it was a pleasure but there was an awful lot of work went on behind the scenes for them
0: I'm sure there was. I, I seem to read about a fairly memorable trip to India. Not wasn't quite sure. I oh,
1: I have the picture in my office, trains, planes, and all sorts of things.
0: How did you end up in India? I didn't know that you represented. Well, it, it, was, company. it was
1: actually it, it was to do with simplicity and Victor Adams, who many will remember. Vic, Victor Adams sponsored a, a, a Save the Bear project in India, where they created a special area for what they call the sloth bears there, or the dancing bears from India, as a lot of people would know them as, which was incredibly cruel. But what the Indian government started to do was rescue these bears, but if they took them away from the people that were using the bears, they had no income. So they used to help the people that owned the bears Um, start a new business somewhere, take the bears away and put them in a sanctuary. And Victor Adams had a lot to do with this sanctuary. It sort of generated this interest in going to India, and one of the main reasons was to actually go and visit the bear sanctuary. We were actually the very first tourist group to be allowed into this sanctuary, a big place. And um, I remember when we first walked in, the guy that was in charge of the place, the bears were out in the distance in their in their secure areas, and they started to come over to see us. And this guy who ran, ran it, and I don't remember his name, he just burst into tears. And I said, what's the matter? And he just said, this is not what we expected. We expected the bears to try and hide away from people because of the way they'd been treated. And they're exactly the opposite. And it was really quite amazing and quite touching. And that all still goes on today. And, you know, gradually they, they're, they're getting the bears into these sanctuaries to be looked after. So that created a trip, if you like, on what they call the Golden Triangle in India. So Delhi, Jaipur, Agra. And we saw all the sites. We did some amazing things, got looked after incredibly well. We turned up in Jaipur and actually had our very own polo match.
0: Not on elephants, I hope.
1: No. Claymore versus Simplicity. All branded up with cups and trophies. It was part of the Indian National League, and we were being hosted by, by the local Maharaja. So... You know, I, I could go on for hours. Quite, quite
0: amazing. Quite amazing. And, so those, and of course, at, at this time also, Keith, um, with all these brands, again, under your belt, the the expo show in Louisville was, was quite an important um uh, event for you, which was then held in July, of course, which was uh, often stiflingly hot. But um there was quite a lot of British contingent and involvement in that show back in those days.
1: No, they. I mean, they. Oh, what can I say? It was great fun. A lot of travelling, a lot of shows, meeting people. Always the important thing, and meeting what what I call Brits abroad. It just just amused me no end. You know, we're we're terrible abroad, really. You know, we don't tend to adjust to the local scene. We just turn around and say, well, we're English. And then everybody understands that we're, we're nuts. We're not going to conform to anything. And we like drinking beer, you know. So round at the shows, I mean, my, well, I think I've written about it before, but one of my lasting memories was bumping into Lance Bassett and some of the guys at Louisville and they're in in. English short sleeve shirts and pale shorts, you know, totally white, no suntan at all, wandering around the show, looking absolutely old school British tourists, and you know, and they were running big businesses at the time. I just thought it was hilarious, but yeah, uh, some good times at the show. But and and the big, um, the, the the golf show as well, the big machinery shows that moved around um meeting people there suppliers other people from around the world really and and that's how you made the connections when um i I remember being at one of the shows that's how we took on solo we got introduced to the guys who own solo and they were looking for a distributor in the uk and that's how it came about
0: so you you'd been in you'd set up claymore and were pretty active in that and um Two thousand and three, you you became president of the AEA, uh, Keith, yeah. and suddenly pitched into a world that included uh, tractors and combines and all the big big stuff. How did you adapt to all that? Did you understand what was going on and what they were talking about? Well,
1: yeah, I I, I think I, I think so. i have going to say that because even now uh, the you know, my my background really is garden machinery and uh, big commercial mowing equipment, so to come into the ag side of things was a bit different, And uh, but being on the AEA board, because to become president, you have to have been on the board for quite a long time in different committees, and it's a sort of nine-year process. So you're involved in an awful lot of things over a long period of time, and um, very special, very interesting. It's, it's always – it's not, not, not a question of surprising me. I've, I've always been fascinated by how cooperative everybody is behind the scenes, and you know, in terms of trying to make sure things are right, talking to each other and that, and all, all very generous with their time and information. So, yes, um, a real good uh, education again and one that I could take back to our business and use, better understanding of the industry and what, what, what you can do and and also, you know, a fairly prestigious post in the industry.
0: And, and and what did you learn from it? Did you did it benefit you took it you took a lot of stuff back to the business? Um, but did it sort of give you a round, more rounded approach? View, I mean, you've been on the council, any, or you've been on the council anyway, so you'll be getting that, wouldn't you? Um, but but how did it benefit you overall, then, Keith?
1: Well, I, I think it, it, it's a much wider and more in depth awareness of, of the industry generally and how it works. Um, learning about what might be happening in the future that you wouldn't necessarily see from just reading the news and things like that. Um, and probably learning in in terms of being able to adjust your business to suit certain things, so there were there were ways of saving money, looking at different ways of operating your business um things like a simple thing, well, not simple, but things like h r you know when you can talk to other people about how they're running their businesses and what their businesses need. And and it it did help an awful lot. Um, we dealt with uh, we 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 turned Claymore into an ISO nine thousand company, uh, and that was really because of discussions within the AEA when I was there, and uh, that that helped enormously. Having traceability and accountability at your fingertips in your business is. I mean, today it's far, far more important than it ever used to be, but actually knowing what was going on without losing stuff was was hugely helpful, and that, and that came out of being part of the AEA at the time. Yeah. So, yes, there, there was a lot to learn and things you could take advantage of, and I think more importantly, actually knowing the people in the industry helped enormously when you had problems
0: so a couple of years later then after the in 2006 claymore was was sold wasn't it um what were your memories of those days
1: when when we sold it yes oh i was i was terribly sad um for me personally um but yeah i was very involved in it we, we ran the business between us uh the reekies were very supportive if we needed if we needed them, but they they kept away from the business on a day to day basis. So when we were looking at selling it, um, we'd had some problems with one of the suppliers, and there were some big changes in one of our other main suppliers. So very basically, I always viewed Claymore as like a table having four legs. So our four four of our main brands supported it and we could have changes in one part of the the sales that didn't affect another part. So you know we had a nice mix of product that wasn't always affected by the same things. So if you took one of those away, you would have a problem. But we we were faced with maybe losing two of those. And whilst the business would have still been sustainable, it would have been very difficult to bounce back. So when people take away a brand from you or as was the case with Robarine, uh, John Deere bought Robarine, and we lost Roberine to John Deere. you know it was all very professionally done, I have to say um, but we still lost it and we had to look at what was going on with the business and um, FGM from Ireland were interested they they had a sales operation in the UK but no base. They were interested in having a base. And um, Simon Rieke really took the view there was an opportunity to sell the business without damaging the business. And I have to say from a commercial point of view and from my position in the business, it absolutely made sense to do it. But in the end, I was really going to be the only casualty. <laughs> it all sounds very grand, but in the best interest of the business, it, I decided to go along with it. Um the Rikis gave us the option for turning it down. But to turn it down didn't make business sense. So um, that's what we did. And um, I moved on. But yeah, I was very sad. I was very sad to leave after 23, 24 years.
0: But I mean, as you say, it's where commercialism meets uh, personal uh, ambition yeah. and personal feelings, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so, uh, to, to this day, I have no doubt that it was the right decision at the time for for the businesses, for FGM, and and, and for Claymore and the Riki. So,
0: so here you are. You 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 said you were going to be the only casualty. Did did, did you you obviously stayed on for some while? So, how mm. and from there, I think an opportunity to join Bagma uh, came along. And how did that how did that happen, then, Keith? Well,
1: perhaps Bagma we're advertising for a new general manager in the Bagma Bulletin, and um, you know we'll have a plug here. I've always been an avid reader of the Bagma Bulletin. I, I've I've always thought it's been a very helpful magazine when when in my working days, and um, something I've always been delighted to be a part of in in my Bagma days. So, yeah, the little advert in the Bagma Bulletin. So I thought, right, it's time to go. I'll. Um, I'll apply.
0: Indeed. And this was 2007. And I think to put this in historical perspective, uh, it might just be worth um, actually casting a line back what was happening at that time. I mean, actually, 2007 was when uh, Tony Blair handed over to Gordon Brown and uh, the smoking ban in England was, was introduced. And we have major floods, which actually was the uh, last uh, royal show that we were to have. And yes. in the industry, yes. actually, Keith, 2007. Uh, there was this LTA scheme launched yes. the land-based technician accreditation scheme, which was a, a wonderful idea for actually passporting uh, technicians, which um, had a sort of a, a fractured uh, progress over the following years. Alan Power, that famous company went into administration and mm-hmm. GGP, which is now Steger, of course, um, they really had a big crackdown on their dealers over internet selling so there were some very different times, and incidentally, just one other one. Uh, it was announced that one of our iconic uh, engine brands, Tecumseh, was to close. Yes. Um, that they, they. So thinking back, that seems an awful. All that seems an awful long time. And so, there was quite a lot going on in the industry at that time.
1: Well, then, now you mention it, yeah, I hadn't pieced it all together, but yes, I mean we were involved with Tecumseh. That the house I'm in now, the house I live in in Evesham on the river. Um, had seven foot of water in it in 2007. We didn't live there then. So the flooding, yes, very serious flooding. All the other things going on in the industry, yes, it was a big, big change. And the LTA scheme, uh, I, I walked into that one with the launch at uh, the Motor Museum at Gaydon. I, I remember doing that and, and a conference for the NEAC on the same day and i had a stinking cold and my sort of gloucestershire somerset accent mixed with the cold doesn't go down too well at times but um, yeah that that was uh, quite an amazing event really yeah, an awful lot going on and then uh, changing and, to- and how
0: did you grow into the role you, you would have known a lot of dealers obviously from your claymore days so obviously this made it easier for for you from than somebody coming in from outside
1: Yes, um, definitely. And um, uh, again, you know, I'm mainly garden machinery. So the garden machinery guys and my old customers then and today uh, have been amazing, really. Awful lot of support, lots of conversations, lots of ability to go and talk to people and find out what they want. But the BAGMA hadn't had a general manager or director for two years. My predecessor had left two years before, and they hadn't been able to replace him. So I walked into some strange ways in the business at the time, which got settled down quite quickly.
0: Um, Um, Tell me, was, because Bagma was part of Byron, British Independent Retailers.
1: The British Hardware Federation, as was at the time, and then that, got changed over to Byra some years later.
0: It was BHF at the time, yeah. Mm. Um, And how did that fit in with BHF initially?
1: Well, it it, had been part of the BHF for quite a long time, and I'm I'm sure you remember that BHF basically rescued Bagma from oblivion, really, as I understand it. BAGMA had a lot of financial trouble and stuff like that. And um, there was a connection between the BHF and BAGMA at the time. And the BHF came in and took over everything to do with BAGMA and kept it going. So really that side of it was fine, but there there were some synergies being part of an uh, independent retailers association um, in, in terms of a mindset for retailing. But in, in my days in BAGMA, BAGMA was a separate part of the BHF and BIRA. We ran ourselves and we used marketing departments, membership departments and things like that because the standard admin processes were pretty much the same. But not so much um, interaction between Bagma and High Street retailers yeah. there were some great people, met some great people there, and um you know a lot of conversations about retailing, but we were always very particular to to make sure the marketing department referred to dealers and not retailers in our case. Yeah. Um, and they are quite different, although you might be able to apply some of the the retail aspects of any selling. You know there aren't too many garden machinery guys left on the high streets in in the UK anymore, and that that whole sort of ethos of a garden machinery dealer doesn't really fit with the standard high street retailer.
0: And, and over the, the the subsequent years, you joined in two thousand and seven, and if we as we moved into the uh, following years, what, what were the major uh, issues that you had to deal with on behalf of members? Ooh. <laughs>
1: yeah that all merges into one i mean <laughs> there's lots of things that i I've, I've i've seen looking back through the archives of of BAGMA going back over 100 years that have always been discussed and never resolved warranty being one of them dealer contracts being another you know and i i'm mean, not me now but in the archives we have in the office um you can pull out minutes and conversations and various industry discussions about those issues, apprenticeships, recruitment into the industry. I mean, it might might seem a bit strange at the moment when we're struggling to get people in, but recruitment's always been on the agenda. So maybe they're the biggest issues. And then later on, it was more about how dealers can make a profit, doing health checks on dealers, um you know which which was quite a common practice in the agricultural dealerships. and then in those times with the I mean I always think it's gone full circle, but where where you had ag people starting to take on guard machinery. So if you had at the time, it's quite different nowadays, but at the time you had an agricultural salesman used to selling hundred grand tractors trying to sell a two thousand pound ride on. You know and and applying the same discount principles that they have for tractors to guard machinery and that used to tear things apart a bit
0: keith if we if we move forward i I guess um and all those that you've mentioned warranty recruitment apprentices uh are are all tended to be ongoing issues yeah. and of course if we move forward to twenty twenty came a came an episode that um, came really out of left field that, that uh, really took a lot of handling, and I'm referring, of course, to COVID and um, its, its impact on how businesses would continue whilst the rest of the country was was closed down. Do, do, do What do you remember about those sort of early days of trying to handle that?
1: We we within BAGMA and, and working with other people as well and working with the AEA at the time, uh, we we had to look at all the legislation that was coming out, all the changes. I mean, it was an ever-moving feast of information with, with the pandemic, and everyone was trying to understand how it was going to work. But when they started saying, oh, this, you know, shops need to close and this has to shut down and you can't do this and you can't do that, we started looking at it very closely with what the government were issuing in terms of... Oh, DIY shops can stay open, but garden centres can't and things like that. And um, having looked at it, we we couldn't see any real clarity in how the garden machinery side of things could work or how the rules would apply to them. Agricultural machinery dealers was a little bit different because they come into the realms of the food supply channels but in the end, we, we went to the various ministers and lobbied the government along with the AEA at the time. We did it together and said, right, this is what our industry does. This is what we provide. This is what the garden machinery guys do. And there was a lot of issues about mental health at the time. So we we were emphasising the fact that if people were stuck at home, they need to look after their gardens, they need access to equipment and servicing and things like that. And to be fair to the government, they came back, or the government department we were dealing with, they came back very quickly in black and white and said, your industry can stay open, but they have to apply the normal regulations that will apply during the pandemic. So, we tried to get that message out to dealers as quickly as we could to say you can stay open, but you, your showrooms need to be closed. You know, you can't have people coming into the business. And a lot of them started setting up um, collection points in their yards and things like that. We, we we had quite a few people come on to us for clarification And we had two occasions where a couple of dealers were going to be prosecuted for breaking the rules, one by the police and one by their local authority, and we managed to stop both of those straight away by by showing them this letter from the government saying, no, they're allowed to do this. So, yeah, a lot of work behind the scenes, but as you know, the industry stayed open and... Whilst it might have been difficult, what I hear is some of them had their best couple of years ever.
0: And I think it'd be true to say that uh, the whole industry, across the industry, both uh, in agricultural machinery and turf care, uh, responded magnificently to what was going on at the time. Uh,
1: absolutely, you know, and 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 did the UK a huge favour by by keeping by helping to keep people occupied, cut their grass. I mean one of the things we said to the government well if you're not going to allow this you're going to have people coming back to sports areas grass areas with the grass 3 foot high mm. you know so that, that I have to say once it was done with the government departments they were all on board with it there was no arguing they just said yes we agree with you
0: but, and I think there are certain actions that were taken because of COVID that have we've obviously sort of kept on going in terms of social media, uh, connecting with customers and uh, making demonstration films and the like, haven't they?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, no, you know, that out of any crisis, there's always some benefit comes out of it. And I, I think dealers...
0: And, um, you know, Keith, um, I've always sort of thought because um, very shortly after that, the AEA... Um, took BAGMA under its wing. It actually effectively bought BAGMA. And I've always thought that the catalyst for that probably was the closeness of the relationship that you might have had at that time, working uh, specifically with Ruth Bailey at the AEA and yourself, working out the COVID uh, procedures and so on. And I'm sure that gave you the opportunity to talk more broadly about the industry as a whole. And uh, and and when, I, I'm not sure whether uh, you're, holding company Byra decided to sell it or whether AEA made a bid for it what what actually happened
1: our change was born out of the problems of the pandemic in the retail sector the problems that Byra were facing at the time um, you know with retailers having to close down and all that and the income levels changing and um, Byra really decided that they would be better off selling bagma that there was well, in a nutshell there was no future for bagma within byra byra wanted to refocus on the retail sector uh batten down the hatches for the pandemic and everything else and um i was asked if i could sell bagma and um I drew up a short list, and the first company on the short list was the AEA, and I didn't have to go further down it. So,
0: and it wasn't the first time that that had been um, that had been mooted anyway. Oh, no. I mean, just a, again as a piece of historical, you mentioned the uh, BHF takeover of uh, Bagma. Of course, Jonathan Swift had been the. Uh, uh, CEO of of Bagma for many for many years, and indeed his father had been a, a president of the AEA, um, mm-hmm. and then Johnson Swift obviously then left Bagma to become managing director of the BHF. Um, so this connection was um, already there in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I mean, certainly the BHF rescuing Bagma was because of what you've just said, and the the AEA over, well, the hundred-odd years of BAGMA's history, the AEA and BAGMA have always been involved together in lots of things, not always agreed with everything, I have to say, but a lot of it's minuted, and a lot of the history side of it is really interesting. Because of my previous involvement with the AEA, ever since I started in BAGMA, I've always worked with the AEA, much more so when Ruth joined, And and that was a very good relationship. The AEA have always been helpful to BAG, we're always helpful in the background, and, uh, you know, we've respected that help and some of the confidentiality uh, assigned to it because uh, there's an awful lot of things that we and the AEA do behind the scenes that we're not actually allowed to report on. Um, if we did dealing with government government departments on certain things, you know, there, there has to be a certain amount of um, discretion. But as soon as you start going public about something and maybe disagreeing with them, they'll just shut down on you and you won't be able to talk to them properly. So we do an awful lot that people don't get to hear about. But as in the case of the pandemic, um, we we also worked together very closely on the um, issues when they redrafted the rules on red diesel, which was more recently, and uh, working together with the AEA, we managed to get the HMRC to change their minds about dealers being allowed to have red diesel on their premises. And that, that was a big issue at the time, but resolved fairly quickly and very amicably with the hmrc i have
0: to say and the trade associations are, as well as being representative organizations are also commercial organizations um they have to drive membership how, how difficult or easy has it been over over the years to ask people to or get people to join because there's always been a what's mm. in it for me type of approach to it hasn't there yeah well that,
1: yeah it's a really big question that and um something we we talk about all the time. Sometimes people want to be part of a trade association because they understand that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that has some benefit to them generally, but it also benefits the industry generally. There are more specific things. We, we offer members benefits and services. Um, so, we can add. I'm sorry. I say we. I'm not there anymore. Bagma can add value to um, a business. People have to be a member. It's not hugely expensive to be a member. But it, I, I mean, to me, it's it's like a bit of insurance in some respects. You pay for your insurance, and you hope you never have to use it. But but you do sometimes, and you get some benefit from it. So with Bagma, with all the services that Bagma have. member can pick up the phone and get legal help help with hr issues and that that can save them an awful lot of money and that's the type of insurance level if you like that's there so you know for a very small amount of money per year there's an awful lot of benefit but the problem is that a lot of people don't know it's there even the members so trying to keep that in front of them is terrible. I mean, I use an analogy. It's like, it's like being a member of a golf club where you've paid a membership fee, you pay to go and play, but you don't actually use it. And then you complain to the golf club that I'm not getting value for money. But it, it's, it's, sorry, I'll apologize to anyone listening to this. It's, it's your fault if you don't use it you know so when people come along and say well I'm not getting value for money it's because they're not using it they also don't and I have talked to members who who don't use any services and I said well why are you a member and they said well we know what else you do for us so we're happy to pay you know and they don't want anything they just know that in the background we're going to sort things out for them And, and that's a benefit but Member or not, the industry does benefit generally from what Bagma does, what, what any trade association with the industry does. So we add value to a business, but you have to use us to do it.
0: Look, Keith, it's been a wonderful sort of reminisce of over of, of 40 years. Um, sort of looking back, how do you view? I mean, you can look specifically um at the garden machinery, the turf care industry. How has it evolved and what sort of state do you think uh, it is in, in at the moment? We, we've had a lot of change. There's been a lot of uh, ideas come and go. Buying groups have come and gone and and, and so on. And there's been acquisitions and takeovers and, and so on. But what, what do you think is the state of the industry in general at the moment?
1: I tend to separate the question if I could because <clears throat> garden machinery grand care dealers are in a different place than the agricultural machinery dealers are. So, you know, with the with the garden machinery guys, they're, they're very adaptive. They've survived the pandemic. They've had some good businesses, but there's a lot changing. And over the years, you and I have seen it. You know, the worry used to be the sheds. The worry now is online selling. And online selling at the moment seems to create Issues with margin retention and after sales support, which is a big issue at the moment that we've been involved with. And I think dealers generally are much smarter. Uh, Their supply channels are, are quite different. There are issues because of the pandemic, because of shortages of product, because of containers which I, I hear the prices on containers are tumbling now but for two or three years they've had to go through all that and a lot of them are in a good position because they're adaptable because they're independent and because the garden machinery guys deal with um, multi-brand product they're in a quite different position than the big ag companies who tend to be single franchise and where the manufacturing side of it has more control over how those dealers operate. And, uh, you know, we, we see the, um, the mergers that are going on, the consolidations that are going on, the, the so-called super dealer idea. The big manufacturers are following down that route, but that's not so easy to do in the garden machinery side. So the garden machinery guys are still very independent, very, very experienced companies and what they're doing. But there's quite a few things that, that that in the background they need to sort out with their suppliers or their suppliers with them. And and I think the pandemic has raised quite a lot of issues in that area that people are dealing with. But there's more of a I, I feel at the moment that, that there seems to be more of a purpose with the garden machinery guys to look after each other maybe that will see some changes in the future
0: well c- certainly online i've seen some quite encouraging uh, reports of good business and uh, across the across the industry really so um, let's hope so look um, you say a sense of purpose um, what's your sense of purpose now then keith uh, um, I'm here tell that you 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 played a game of rugby the other day. And is this I a regular it, pastime? And is uh, Katie very happy about that?
1: <laughs> oh no, she thinks I should have given up 20 odd years ago. Um and I, I still enjoy playing. Um I still ache afterwards, like most people do. Um, but I think having played rugby oh, for 50 odd years. To have the odd game occasionally, vets rugby and vets rugby can be quite tough, but really, really enjoyable, and um, it makes for a much more enjoyable evening in the bar afterwards. <laughs> I still enjoy that, and um, I even asked my doctor about it, and she said, "No, you carry on playing." <laughs> you
0: know, but, it gives me it gives me work.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, you know, when everybody looks at me and said, "Oh, you're a prop, are you?" So and and you've got
0: a nickname, haven't you? Oh yeah well they,
1: they they used to call me the flying pig they now call me pumba <laughs> because I'm all puff and grunt
0: and presumably also you've got a love of motorcycling and so you'll have a little bit more time for that
1: oh yes yeah yeah but um yeah i mean it's all rugby motorbiking trials riding and um yes yeah, sp- and spending some time thinking about what to do, you know, yeah. because it's been so busy. People have asked me, Oh, what are you gonna do when you retire? I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a month thinking about what I'm gonna do when I retire, you know, because it's quite right. Been so busy and uh, doing a handover. And um I mean if, if I may say, Chris, fortunately, um I've been able to do a handover. To a guy that's been in the industry for a long time knows the dealer network and everything else so he's already halfway there with his job which is great a very similar background to mine and um, you know I wish him all the best for the future
0: we are referring to Nick Darking Nick, of Nick,
1: Nick Darking yes. Yes. Sorry. yes
0: that's all right yes. no uh, as you say somebody with uh, vast experience in the in the industry um, and, and so on so Look, Keith, um, I've really enjoyed this. I mean, it's it's turned back the pages and the years for me as well, because as I said, we first met when you came in as a, a fledgling rep with Spear and Jackson and uh, uh, our paths have crossed very regularly since then. So, look, can I can I wish you all the best and uh, your, your month of thinking about what you're going to do in retirement? And, and I'm sure everybody in the, in the industry wishes you well and uh, you and Katie f- for whatever lies ahead anyway, Keith.
1: Yeah thank you thank you very much Chris and um, I may I'd like to thank everyone in the industry that I've ever had anything to do with great bunch of people great company and really really good at what they do so Absolutely. good luck to them all
0: Thank you very much What a fascinating account of a life well lived so far Once again there is nothing more I can add other than to wish Keith and Katie all the very best for the future And if you get stuck behind the caravan on the highways and byways this summer, watch out, it might just be the Christians on Tour. I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside Agriturf.